Morning, everyone. Um, okay, so if you've got a Bible with you, or some kind of device with it on, you might want to turn up uh, Luke uh, chapter 1. We'll come to that in just a moment. I apologise for the size of my Bible, it's just large print, and at my age, that's a really helpful thing. So, um, Okay, so um, I've got a bit of a hard task this morning because I have to intro, uh, intro a brand new series and also pull a sermon out of it and do a reading in this. So I'm going to try and kind of rattle through at some speed. Um, but I just want to uh, start really by saying this. There's uh, a new cultural phenomenon that has exploded over us in the West in the last 11 years. It's the illegitimate love child of social media and the smartphone, okay? It's been nurtured by that invention called the front-facing camera, courtesy of iPhone 4. And it has finally been accepted by um, all of the establishment by its inclusion in the Oxford English Dictionary in 2013. And that phenomenon is the selfie. So um, this is a really great moment, if you love the irony of these kind of moments, to get your phones out and take some kind of selfie of you at church. Um, Now the question is, what is a selfie? Well, basically a selfie is the public posting in the social networking sphere of a photo of a person that is taken by that same person. It's normally highly engineered and posed, It's a momentary snapshot of people's favourite subject, themselves. (laughs) And that is a whole bathroom full of awesome. But over time, the the selfie has kind of evolved. We've we've kind of experienced the world now of (laughs) fake selfies. Um, We've experienced the world of the world's first animal selfie. There obviously is that huge range of selfies called the food selfie. This is my favourite. This is a man and his bacon. And bacon is like the kitchen's answer to duct tape. It fixes everything, okay? Um, And then, of course, there's the holiday selfie, where what we do is we take photos of ourselves in exotic locations that we know nobody else will ever be able to afford to go to. And then the kind of piece de resistance is, of course, the celebrity selfie. Now, all of this, you wonder how I got hold of that one, don't you? All of this leads me to think, um, how long before somebody comes up with a Jesus selfie? Yeah. And um, when I found this on the internet, I was kind of mildly amused, but also greatly disappointed. Because the truth is, I don't think a selfie can do Jesus justice. You cannot cram all Jesus is into a one-second snapshot that's posed and momentary because he doesn't pose. He's the authentic real deal. He doesn't need to make anything up. Yeah, I think it was um, the Apostle John said, you know, all the libraries of the world couldn't contain all the words about all the stuff he's done, let alone who he is. And I believe who he is is bigger than what he's done. Thankfully, God hasn't just left us with a selfie of Jesus. He's actually given us what I call a full-length mega blockbuster film of himself. 
And um, that blockbuster kind of has the father as the producer. It has the Holy Spirit as the director. And it has Jesus as the superstar headline himself. And four top-notch screenwriters were commissioned to write that blockbuster. And each of them came with their bit of script, which kind of gives us a unique perspective on who Jesus is. So um, the first of those we know really well is Matthew. And he's writing effectively to a Jewish audience, and he presents Jesus as Messiah, as the king. And quite often his gospel is represented by the image of the lion. Then we've got the second scriptwriter, who's Mark, who's writing to um, a Roman audience, and he presents Jesus as the servant. And if you read Mark's gospel, you'll see the number of times that it says immediately, 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 because that's what servants do. A command is given by the master, and the servant immediately goes and does it. And that's how Jesus is presented there. And then we have um, John, who uh, his gospel is quite often represented with the eagle. And he's writing to unbelievers, and he, he is presenting to us Jesus, who is the divine, who is this amazing God who sits over the whole of the created universe. And time and time again, John writes about the signs that point to this great divine person. And then finally, we have um, Luke. Luke was a guy who was writing to a Greek audience, and he presents Jesus as the perfect man. And that's kind of really cool, because at that time in Greek culture, the Greeks had this idea that there was a perfect man. Now, I know half of the congregation here are probably questioning that. Um, But no, the Greeks really did believe there was such a thing as a perfect man. And so kind of Luke taps into that. And, And he really drives home at this, because he gives more time to the birth narrative of Jesus than anybody else. And really, that's where I want to park up today, because this is a new series we're starting. We're going to be looking at Luke's gospel. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4.14 talks about Luke, the beloved physician. So it gives us a little bit of insight into who this guy Luke is. He is the doctor. And you know, that would seem to bear up, because when you kind of dig into the text, it's, it's a very technical and polished Greek text, and it's consistent with someone who was highly educated. It's, it's analytical, it's exact, and he uses more medical language in his gospel than Hippocrates, who was the father of modern medicine, particularly when Luke's writing about miracles, so I think it's especially poignant for us as a church because we've got healing as such a big thing that we do to be looking into this gospel. You know, in the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 1, Luke explains how he's basically trying to give an orderly account that he has received from eyewitnesses and ministers. And what I love about that, even that is saturated with who he is as a doctor. Because the word he uses for eyewitnesses is, is the Greek word autoptes, which is, comes from the root word autopti, which is where we get autopsy. So this is gospel is written by a bunch of people who have literally autopsied the life, the person, the character of Jesus. They have forensically pulled it to pieces. And how could they do that? Well, he says there... They're um, ministers or, or people who ministered alongside Jesus. And that word in the Greek, when it's used in a medical context, means they were 
interns. So Jesus' interns produce this autopsy of who he really is. And Luke pulls all this stuff together for us. There was, um, there was a guy in the 19th century called Sir William Ramsey. He was an ardent atheist. He hated Christians. He hated Christianity. He hated the God of the Bible. He hated the Bible. And he was a really, really clever cookie apart from that because he had nine doctorates, one of them from Oxford. So, I mean, he was, you know, on the kind of scale of smart people, he was sort of well towards the top. And he decided, let's destroy Christianity. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to completely undermine the historicity. So he thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to attack Luke because Luke presents us with the most historical accounts of Jesus. And he spent 25 years doing that. He basically dug up most of the Middle East and the Aegean. And do you know what happened in 25 years? He went from ardent atheist to agnostic to born-again believer. And... um, Here's just some of the words he wrote about Luke. He says, you know, Luke's words are written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be the model historical document. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. So that's really good news for us today, and I'll tell you why. It means as we start this series, you can go to the bank on Luke. Okay? If it's in Luke's gospel, you can bank on it. And that's important. But not only that, you know, Luke volume 1 and 2, um, you know, Luke is this guy who gives us more of the New Testament than anyone else. 27% of the New Testament is written by Luke. The book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, volume 1 and 2 of Luke, I call them. They, they were written to a wealthy patron and a high-ranking official. You may know this phrase, the most excellent Theophilus, yeah? And um, that term, excellent, Theophilus is his, basically his excellency, most people think. So this is a high-ranking Roman official. And the reason that Luke wrote to him was so that he could be sure about what he'd heard about Jesus. And that's really cool for us because this guy's name was Theophilus. problem is every time I read this, I think of Lenny Henry and Theophilus P. Wildebeest. <laughs> that dates me, I know. Um, <clears throat> but Theophilus literally means Theo. It's the lover of God. So this is personal to this high-ranking official, but if you sit here this morning as a lover of God, then the historical weightiness and just veracity of this document is something that I pray is going to build us all up together. You know, Luke wrote something like 1,151 verses in his gospel, and over 500 of them are the direct words of Jesus. I say all this because some of you are tech heads and you need to know all that stuff before we can get into the proper preaching. But, you know, there it is. And the main theme of, of this gospel is salvation. He uses the term salvation six times and 17 times he uses that verb sozo, which we know means to be saved, to be healed, to be delivered. We're not talking about fire insurance from hell. 
Yeah, the old school gospel. Remember that? The golden ticket in your back pocket and let's sit on our blessed assurance till the first plane out of here. No, he's talking about a complete, encompassing, entire gospel that affects and impacts every single part of our life and being. That's why this gospel is so red hot and so cool. So... We're going to dive into the text. So if you've got a Bible, please open up Luke 1. If you haven't got one, look around, look at somebody who looks really holy and see if they've got a Bible and sit next to them. Um, I'm going to put my glasses on for this because even though this is big print, it's not big enough print. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. 
among people. It's a big chunk of scripture, I know, but, you know, this blockbuster of Jesus begins not with Jesus, but actually the prequel. You know, you have Lord of the Rings, but there's actually, you know, The Hobbit is the prequel. Uh, This is like the prequel. And I want to talk this morning about the God who gives us breakthrough in the impossible. Because our God is the God of breakthrough. You know that. You know, when they kind of wrapped his butchered body up and placed it in a tomb, it was curtains as far as they were concerned. But when you have a God of the breakthrough... Not even a stone-sealed tomb guarded by a whole cohort of Roman soldiers can keep the Son of God dead and in the ground. And that is the single principle that underpins everything we're going to talk about. He is the God of breakthrough. Nothing can stop him. And the great thing is the same spirit who dwelt in him and made that incredible miracle that we celebrate because we actually meet today on a Sunday... That's why we meet on a Sunday, not a Saturday, because this is the Lord's day he rose. That same spirit that was behind that whole supernatural act is the very same God who lives inside you and lives inside me. So we are breakthrough people. But our story um, starts um, with the impossible. You know, like most stories of breakthrough, you can't have breakthrough unless there's an impossibility. Because there's nothing stopping you. If there's no impossibility, if we want to be a people of breakthrough, occasionally we are going to have to face the impossible. And we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they have no children. And from what I read in Luke, they're not likely to. And they live this kind of schizophrenic life. In verse 5 and 6, we're told about how they have good lineage. They both basically are descended from Aaron. That is a credential to have in Israel at that time. Not only that, they've got a good walk. We we read about how they're blameless, walking in all the commandments and statues of God, and they're righteous. So they've got everything going for them. But the flip side of their schizophrenic situation is, but they have no children. Now in our world, that increasingly is becoming a lifestyle choice common lifestyle choice in our world. But in that world, it was a very, very different deal. You know, the fertility cults of the ancient Near East thrived because you needed, to use a biblical phrase, to have a quiver full of children. Yeah? Why? Well, there was no social security. There was no winter fuel payment. There was no old age pension. So you had a stack of kids. And when they're pooping and weeing and messing everywhere, you deal with them. And when you're pooping and weeing and messing everywhere, they deal with you. But in Israel, it was an even bigger deal. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So here you've got this well-lined up couple. Hey, they come from Aaron. And they walk well before God, and yet they have no fruit of the womb. Can you imagine what's going on in the people's minds around them? In fact, there were some hardcore rabbis at this time who reckoned there were seven kinds of people who um, basically would be excommunicated from Yahweh. One of those was a Jew who had no wife. The second one was a Jew who had a wife but didn't have a child. Can you imagine their pain? 
Can you imagine the shame that was heaped upon them? Can you imagine what their prayers must have been like? Oh God, please. Please, we've done nothing wrong. Just don't understand why it's like it is. Luke highlights their, um, their impossibility and he underlines it. He says, she was barren. Like it was actually impossible for her to have kids. But not only that, he kind of underscores it by saying, oh, and they're well advanced in years. And this is the double whammy. And maybe that's you in your situation. It's not just something's impossible. There's a double whammy. There's a whole stack of things that are creating this impossible thing that you just cannot get beyond. You know, we're living in a world in this story where there is, sorry to say, no Viagra. There's no sperm banks. There's no surrogacy program. There's no test tubes. There's no IVF. They are totally hosed. It's God or nothing. Can you imagine the pointy fingers? And that might be you today. You might be really desperate for breakthrough in an impossible situation. And you may well feel the finger of the accuser, our enemy, who loves going, look at you. Well, the truth is, in that moment of impossibility, you have a choice. And the choice you have is whether you are going to agree with heaven or whether you are going to agree with hell because they are both looking for your agreement. Are you going to sit under the impossibility and capitulate and curl up and cry on your pillow? Or are you going to step out from underneath the impossibility and actually believe what Mary heard in the next story, which is almost a parallel of this? Nothing is impossible with God. You know, I, I love that story that Chris Gore tells uh, from Bethel about um, his daughter who was severely disabled and she had this major operation. She had this scoliosis, I think, that was literally crushing her internal organs and would kill her. She had this major operation. And after the operation, they could not get her to stop bleeding. And he said, I had a choice in that moment what I was going to do. And he says, I drew up two chairs. And he sat on one of them and he invited the enemy to take a seat on the other. He got his iPod out plugged it in and just started praising God. We have a choice what we're going to do in our moment of impossibility. Are we going to align ourselves with heaven or align ourselves with hell? You know, I remember, gosh, it would be about six years ago now when I came out of a meeting with Anne where we just met with a whole panel of experts who had delivered the fact to us that Josh was autistic. And they basically gave us two sides of A4 about autism and said, welcome to the rest of your life. Goodbye. And we came out of that place. We made a decision. Our life is not going to be defined by this, and this is not going to be the reality of the rest of our life. 
And I praise God for a number of prophetic words that came at that time. One of them was from Kim, who had a picture. Do you remember this evening school of a Volkswagen Beetle? Which is a pretty random thing to get. And it was the very first car I ever owned. A 1968 Volkswagen Beetle as old as me. And I was given it. I was given it for a quid. That car was a miracle. So God used a miracle car to tell us about a miracle. And we had somebody else who said to us, I just got this picture that God wants you to colour outside of the lines. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it meant we pulled Josh out of school and we started a programme ourselves to work with him called Sunrise. We went to the first training session for this thing so we could kind of be the facilitators for this. And they told this amazing story. It was about a young woman who was born in America in the 40s. Her name was Wilma Rudolph. Some of you may have heard of her. Most of you probably haven't. And she suffered from polio. So badly that the doctors said to her mother, she will never walk. She had all the kind of leg braces and stuff that you used to get in those days. And her mum walked out of that doctor's meeting and said, no, I don't think so. And 20 years later, Wilma Rudolph won three gold medals at the Rome Olympics on the track. And when they interviewed her, they said, But the doctors said you would never walk. So how can you be doing this? And do you know what she said? I chose to believe my mum. And my question today is, as you face your impossibility, is will you believe your dad? Because he is good. And he's better than however good you just pictured him. Like, he really is much better than that. Will you believe your heavenly dad when he says nothing will be impossible with me? And there's a wonderful little twist in this story. That is, this is just the Holy Spirit's sovereignty, right? So, her name in Hebrew is Elisheba. Okay, which means the God of the oath or God's oath. And his name, Zechariah, means Yahweh remembers. So when they got married, they became Mr. and Mrs. God remembers his oath. I want to speak to your heart this morning if you're facing impossibility. And I want to ask you this, what has God promised you? You know, we have such a great privilege in being in a culture here that values the prophetic. Because it means God is talking the whole time. Yeah? And we have access to that. And I want you to draw on some of those words that God has given you over time. I'm a bit of a nerd, I write them all down. Because I forget stuff. And the enemy likes helping you forget stuff. So I've got a little book. It's a bit like some people's little black book of names, but this is my black book of prophecies. And every so often I dip into it and I go, oh gosh, I forgot he said that to me. And we whack that one back on the prayer table and we go to town on it. And the thing is this, what has God promised you? Will you believe him rather than the enemy? Because... This story is about Mr. and Mrs. God remembers his promise. God remembers his oath. Secondly, 
It's about the humdrum. Our story takes place in the humdrum of life. I'll explain what I mean. This story is at the very end of 400 years of nothing in the Bible. Like 400 years ago was the last time God spoke to anyone, as far as we know. There's been 400 years of silence. That page between your Old Testament and the New Testament is actually a 400-year gap. But life has continued as normal. Every day, twice a day, for 400 years, the incense offering has been made in the temple. And no one has heard from God. I did a bit of math. That means that offering was made over a quarter of a million times. So for a quarter of a million times, they went in every day, they burnt some incense, they came out again, and they did it in the afternoon. 250,000 times. I guarantee you that when the lots were dished out for Zechariah and the other 770-odd priests who were on duty that week with him, that he was not expecting heaven to intervene. It's just a guess. You know, it doesn't say it, but it's not outside of the realms of possibility. You know, we've been doing this thing for nearly 400 years. I mean, apart from a few years when the crazy Seleucid Greeks were running the show and they kind of banned the Sabbath and the food laws and set up a statue of Zeus in the temple and slaughtered a pig on the altar. That went down well. Um, But apart from that, but basically 250,000 times they have been repeating it in the humdrum. They're expecting nothing different to happen. The last time God heard anyone speak was Malachi. They were not expecting an intervention from heaven that day, I guarantee it. But that's just how God works. He loves turning up in the humdrum. Whether you're Joseph doing hard stir in prison, I mean, he ended up doing an extra two years because he had his own escape plan. But at just the point that Pharaoh needs a dream interpreter, oh, (laughs) here's the guy. And Moses spends 40 years on the backside of nowhere tending sheep and God suddenly pitches up and David is out in the fields he's like the runt of the litter nobody really cares about him and his family and God supernaturally intervenes and says oh by the way you're going to be king this is just how our God is he loves turning up in the middle of humdrum What's amazing about this encounter is it started out as an ordinary day for Zechariah. There was no indication that this day would be any different from any of the other ones. He'd spent 25 plus years as a priest since the age of 25. And there was no indication this day was going to be different. There was no premonitions, no signs, no klaxons, no neon lights, no warning flag. It was just like every other day in the temple. The sun came up, he ate his shreddies, he went to work. <laughs> and living with impossibility can be like that. We can end up in the humdrum of the predictability of having to live with it. And whatever crud is the kind of outworkings of our impossibility, and we can forget to expect God to come knocking on our door. In the midst of an ordinary day, 
he suddenly has this angelic encounter that would literally change the world of his day. I mean, John the Baptist was a big hitter. He rattled kings with his preaching. The whole country came out to the wilderness to hear him preach. But it didn't just change the world of his day, it changed world history because he was going to be the runway, he was going to be the guy with the little tennis rack, little tennis, table tennis bats ushering in that huge jumbo jet called the kingdom of God and Messiah. And all of that gets dumped on him in the middle of a really, really ordinary, boring, dull day at the office. <laughs> so here's my question. Thursday this week, what are you going to be doing? Where are you going to be? Thursday's a pretty naff day, isn't it? It's kind of like, it's not, even, it's not even close to being the weekend, really. What are you going to be doing? Where will you be? What, what pattern of life will be happening in your world and repeating? What familiar surroundings will you find yourself in? Will you be ironing or washing? You know, what train or bit of tarmac will you be stuck on? Will you be in a meeting or working? They are different, you know. Um, <laughs> will you be in school? Or prepping for an exam or doing the shopping for the weekend. Be under no illusions. It's in just those kind of situations that the God of the universe, our Father, just loves to go, boom. Hello. (laughs) Weren't expecting me, were you? And he wants to turn turn up in ways we could not comprehend with consequences that are far outside of our imagination and dreams. I want to say, folks, let's start expecting to meet him in the ordinary, not just in the really good worship meetings. There were 20,000 priests at this time. They basically kind of had shifts of about 770 at a time on duty. One of them is chosen by lot, that's Zechariah, and that's the one that God wants to speak to. That's pretty amazing odds, isn't it? That God happens to want to speak to a guy who happens to be on duty after 20,000 people that day. And I want to say this, God knows where to find you in the middle of your humdrum. Gabriel wasn't like, oh gosh, there's 20,000 of these dudes. Now, uh, which one is that? Zechariah, get the glasses out. No, he knows where to be. And that's what our God is like. It doesn't matter whether you're Joseph in jail or Moses in the wilderness or David out in the fields. God had their address and he has your address. The thing is, are you expecting him to get crashed? And he is the kind of gate crasher you want at your party. Thirdly, Zechariah freaks out. I love this. If you read the text, it just says, the angel appeared. There was no, like, guy with a trumpet down the corridor. Da, 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 beware. Angel approaching. Like, he's, he's in the holy place. He's like, he thinks he's on his own. Have you ever done that? You've been somewhere where you think you're on your, on your own and somebody suddenly talks to you and you're like, Whoa! And that's what goes on. Suddenly this angel appears. Now, the truth is, angels around us all the time. Some of you have the privilege and the blessing of seeing that stuff. For me, I think it would weird me out a bit too much. So I'm just quite happy to believe they're there. You know what I'm saying? You see them? That's great. Because some of them have eyes all over and stuff, and that would just freak me. (laughs) Although I wouldn't want to go, how many fingers am I holding up? (laughs) 
Zechariah totally melts down. And he's brought this most amazing word. Your prayer has been heard. Now this isn't like Bruce Almighty. Remember Bruce Almighty? Like God switches on Bruce's ears. So suddenly he goes crazy because he can hear everybody who's praying in the world at the same time. And he's like, ah, I can't get away from the noise. No, no. This word here where it says your prayer has been heard. It's like your prayer, your petition has been brought into the royal court of heaven and the case has been heard. That's different. It's like, wow. Your prayer has been heard. It's been heard in the presence of God. And the key to this is found in verses 9 through 11. The word incense is used three times. He's chosen by Lot to go and burn incense. The people, the multitude, are outside praying at the hour of incense. The angel turns up and is stood at the right side of the altar of incense. Something's going on here. When you get repetition, God's trying to tell us something. Well, incense in the Bible is symbolic of the prayers of the people. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer, says David, be counted as incense before you. See, the Jews, they thought that literally angels would take the prayers of the people and carry them up to God in heaven, much like the cloud of incense. When you drop the incense on the hot coals, it just goes and turns into this white cloud and drifts up. That's what they thought happened. And Gabriel's words are a reminder to Zechariah. You know that prayer you prayed? You know that prayer? The crazy one? To see the impossible change? It's been heard. Now, I have a funny feeling that Zechariah stopped praying that prayer a long time ago. Like the chances are his wife was probably 15 or 16 when they got married. We're now told they are well past it. The King James says, well stricken of years. It's a great phrase, that, isn't it? I'm starting to feel the stricken. I'm not quite well stricken yet, but I'm, you know. The two days decorating this week and I woke up on Saturday morning like, like this, you know. I think he stopped praying that a long time ago and I'll tell you why. Because there's an incredulous tone in his voice when he says, how can I know this? Hang on. Uh, You've just had one of the top three dogs in, in heaven. You know, like these three are named Lucifer, Michael, Gabriel. Don't mess with them. They're, they're big. They're huge. They're massive. This guy, he's just turned up and said, your prayer's been answered. You want to go, oh yeah, you reckon? Well, I haven't seen that. (laughs) How can I know this is true? You know, I want to appeal to you this morning. If you've lost hope or have drifted maybe into disappointment or maybe worse still, you've set up camp in a place called bitterness, know this. Your prayer has been heard. Like in the courtroom of heaven. It's been heard. Now I know some of you are going to sit here and say, yeah, but it hasn't been answered. I want to touch on that. I'm not going to do a thorough theological unpicking of this, but I just want to chuck chuck a couple of tidbits out, okay? Firstly is this. Revelation 5.8 talks of angels carrying golden bowls full of incense, and it literally says the incense is the prayers of God the saints 
A few chapters on, in chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, it says, Those prayers then mixed with incense and fire from the altar, and they are hurled down to earth, and there is lightning, and there's thunder, and there's earthquakes. What on earth is that about? Well, it basically means, folks, your prayers get mixed with fire in heaven, and they get thrown down, and stuff shakes on earth. But notice, golden bowls that are full of the prayers of the saints. Well, how are they full? I don't think this is numerical volume. I don't think it's like tossing cards into a hat. Prayer one. Prayer two, prayer three, prayer... Oh, look, I've prayed 150 times for this. It's not happened yet. No, I don't think it's that kind of volume. I think it's not numerical volume, but qualitative volume. I think you can pray one prayer and fill a bowl if that prayer is the prayer of faith. Scripture is really clear. It's impossible to please God without faith. see, anyone can believe God can do something. Like, I believe God can turn the Nile red. Because I've read about it. I believe he can do that. The question is, do I believe he's going to do it? That's the difference. Anyone can believe God can do something, but do they believe he will do something? That is the difference between belief and faith. For belief to be faith, expectancy has to be bolted on. Do you believe he could do something about your impossibility? Or do you believe he will do something about your impossibility? The second point is this, and we don't tend to talk about this so much in a context of faith, but actually sometimes there are seasons It's really interesting because in this story, he says, basically, I'm going to strike you dumb because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. See, there was a time that this prayer was meant to be answered. John the Baptist, 40 years ago, was no use. Why? Because Messiah's not coming for another 40 years. You can stand on the runway with your little table tennis bats, but there ain't no jumbo jet coming in for a long time. Now was the time. For Messiah. Now was the time that there needed to be a herald to basically usher him in. My favourite part of this. Shut it. (laughs) I love the twist of Gabriel striking Zechariah dumb. It's the biblical equivalent of that well-worn EastEnders script line. Shut it. (laughs) Leave it out. Or to put it more politely, Gabriel is like, Zechariah, put the microphone down and step away. Do you know it's possible to talk yourself out of a miracle? That's what Gabriel's doing, doing here. 
He says, you did not believe my words. And the silencing of Zechariah is actually an act of grace. It's not punishment. It's not judgment. It's the angel going, we're just going to go, shut that thing up before you stop one of the greatest events in 400 years coming into being. It's possible to talk yourself out of your miracle, out of your breakthrough. See, both life and death are in the tongue. Both heaven and hell are looking for your agreement. And what we speak over the future works of God greatly affects their potential for fulfillment and their ability to be released. I remember um, church pastored a number of years ago. We had this incredible season. We, we preached through Acts for like weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to Pentecost. And we had, we had hot stuff happening. Like people having visions of Jesus walking around the room. Like furniture, clear the furniture because God's here. You know, just really, really, and, and kids and just everybody was having just this wild time. And, and someone on our leadership team said, oh, I'm just really disappointed we're not seeing more of God. And do you know what? That thing stopped like that. We can actually stop our miracle happening by what we say. So my appeal to you is don't talk yourself out of a breakthrough. And we have this wonderful parallel in the next story with Mary who's being told, not, it's not you're past it and you're going to have a baby. You're a virgin, you're going to have a baby. And her response is interesting. She's like, she's not like, how's that going to, how's that, what? How, how do I know this is true? No, it's not that. She's like, um, I think a man needs to be involved somewhere in this. And I can, hand on heart, hasn't been a man. And the angel's like, that's okay, because nothing with God is impossible. See, there's a difference between understanding and unbelief. Her problem was she had a lack of understanding. Zechariah's problem was he had unbelief. And he started to articulate that, and Gabriel's like, whoa, bad boy, stop that. We're not going to wreck history here. I'm going to read just a couple of verses to finish off. Verses 16 and 17. And he, John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There is a principle in this story, and it's this. It's the principle of the runway. Okay? When God moves and gives breakthrough in your impossibility, I want to tell you something. He has more than just you in mind. See, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's all about, oh, we really want a baby. We're really sick and tired of the pointing fingers. We're just under reproach. We're good people. Look, it says so in the Bible. Blah, blah, blah. We just want a, we want a kid. We want a baby. Why can't, can't, oh please, God. And God's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give you your impossible. But your impossible is going to be the runway for the Messiah. And that's how God always does it. Your breakthrough is about more than just you. 
So lift your eyes, because sometimes we can get a little bit too focused in on my breakthrough and not realize that my breakthrough is breakthrough for many, 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 many more people. Many more people. You know, you see it in the book of Acts, which is Luke volume 2. You know, oh, Jesus, when's the kingdom of God coming? He goes, oh, okay, hang out, wait for the Holy Spirit. Jobs are good, yeah? And we read that story about Pentecost, and it's like the zenith. You, You hear Christians all over the world, oh, if only we could get back to the days of Acts. But the thing is, Pentecost was the Old Testament feast of first fruits. It was like their harvest festival. Did you know that? So in England, we don't have faith. So what happens is we wait till October when we've got the harvest in. Then we give thanks for what he sent us. <laughs> but in Israel, what they do is they, they're like, okay, I'm watching the ground. I'm watching the ground. Whoa, there's, there's, there's some corn. Whack. Woohoo! Look what God's going to do. They've just got this little handful of corn. That's what Pentecost is. It's not the zenith, folks. Pentecost is just the first fruits of salvation. 3,000 in one day, one sermon. Normally these days it's like 3,000 sermons, one gets saved. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's, it's like, it's like 3,000 in one day. Wow. And the Holy Spirit gets poured out and there's chaos. I mean, there is charismatic chaos. And we look back with nostalgia and think, oh, if only we could get... And God's going, no, you... Oh, please... That's just the runway. You should see the jet that's coming in. And I want to say this for us because this is a blessed church. I don't mean this in an arrogant way. I moved my family out of the church I led and here because God's here in a way that I was hungry and desperate for. And we can get a bit settled and think this is it. And I want to tell you, God's in the business of having our people prepared I don't think this is revival. You strike me down afterwards. If you disagree with me, that's okay. But literally, I don't think this is it. I think he's just preparing us for this massive jumbo that's coming. It's coming for this land, and we need it. And we've got about a minute to go. So that's kind of where I'm going to finish. But I want you to see the impossible. It's a joy to walk. Because when you see the impossible broken through, like our son Josh is back in mainstream education. We were told never to take him out the house again. So when he sits here on a Sunday, and he might be drawing and reading asterisks or whatever it is, I think, to that, he's here. He's in school. God has started something. But I'm not satisfied with the little bit of breakthrough that is our, our impossible. I recognize that that is actually a runway for something much bigger. That's the privilege we have, folks. And I, I want to urge you to get out of disappointment and maybe even bitterness and get back to believing God will do it. And so that's how we kind of want to pray for you today when we finish. Yeah? If you need that kind of prayer to bolster you up, come and play the prayer ministry team over here. Because I think God really wants to do some stuff. But we have to have an impossible to have breakthrough. But know this, he has heard your prayer. So.